Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly say, we the people. Welcome to the Laxrex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truchel. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, a constitutional attorney, although not speaking in that capacity today. In case you missed it last week, we have moved our usual disclaimers about the podcast to the end. And so if you're really eager to hear those, you can stick around and listen all the way. you got to wait for them. Yeah. we got something to look forward to this time. Yeah. Save <laughs> so most exciting parts at the end now. Yeah. Saving the best for last. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, with them gone, I guess we just get right into the show now, um, which is... It feels weird, doesn't it? Interesting experience. Yeah. So <laughs> we've got a few things. Yep. Thank, thank you. We've got... <laughs> A few things on the docket, but we're going to start with a bit of breaking news about the... Breaking news! Mm -hmm. <laughs> about the push for federal student loan debt forgiveness, or, as it turns out, maybe the lack thereof. Yeah, so earlier this week, or earlier last week when this comes out, U.S. District Judge Mark Pittman put a stay on the Biden administration's attempt to forgive student loan debt, Pell Grant student loan debt, for... Uh, pretty much anybody that had it, other than you know very high-income people. When that announcement first came out from the Biden administration a few months ago, we, I think same day or next day, pretty shortly thereafter, we uploaded an Ask an Attorney video where we talk about our views on the constitutionality of that action. And we do say that we think that is, I mean, frankly, sort of a usurpation of congressional authority there by the yeah. president. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, those loans were authorized by Act of Congress. President can't just unilaterally decide to get rid of them. Of course, executive orders have sort of been abused for well, close to 100 years at this point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. kind of, that, that kind of reached its high watermark in the Roosevelt administration, That's the Franklin Roosevelt administration, and it's kind of ebbed and flowed since then. You know, some presidents will abuse it more than others. Sometimes, you know, certain circumstances, they'll abuse it more. You know, a few years ago, Saturday Night Live put out one of the few funny things they've done in recent years where... They did kind of a parody schoolhouse rock, and they had, I'm an executive order, and I pretty much just happen. Yep. <laughs> when they were talking about, um, I think that was Obama's attempt to basically give legal status to what they call the dreamers now. Yeah, that was... Anyway, executive orders have been a big deal for a long time. And basically what, what Judge Pittman says is that this program was an unconstitutional exercise of Congress's legislative power. So exactly what we said, yeah. uh, we tend to agree with them on this. We think this is a good step in the right direction. So this is not a final decision. This is a temporary stay right. on the order. It could be appealed. It could go a different way at trial. But for now, if you were looking forward to that student loan forgiveness, well, I hope that you watched our Ask an Attorney video and didn't count your eggs before they hatched. <laughs> Yeah. Your chickens before they hatched. I'm sorry. You can count the eggs. Yeah. Do you know what the challenge was that, you know, that this came out of? Because I haven't had a chance to read a lot about this, but I'm curious what the, you know, what the grounds of the complaint were that led to this. Uh, it was two borrowers who were ineligible for the loan forgiveness okay. that brought suit. That, that does make sense as well. <laughs> yeah. They, they have standing, of course. So I don't know why they were ineligible. I haven't read all the the briefing on this case. Yeah. Uh, but for whatever reason, they were not eligible for forgiveness. You know, it's, you're right. <laughs> I, I don't particularly enjoy modern SNL, but I think they, you know, what you're describing there at any rate does sound pretty accurate to sort of, I, I think the way most people in the American government now think about things, which is not yeah. to actually legislate. It's just to use executive orders to accomplish everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been harsh critics of that. That's obviously been a focus of our litigation efforts. You know, separation of powers is integral to our system of government. It's what makes yeah. America different from the rest of the world. It's really what protects our liberties. It is the primary safeguard of our liberties. You know, that separation of powers, federalism, enumerated powers, all those things are interrelated. Yeah. Those directly safeguard our liberties. So we don't want to see those be scattered to the four winds. No. Uh, just, you know, in, in the, and really, I mean, in this particular case, in the interest of basically a temporary loan forgiveness, you know, it's a very temporary gain yeah. here uh, in exchange for lasting and permanent surrender of our constitutional liberties. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> this is one of those instances where it's really, I don't understand why you didn't at least try, like, you know, make a, a real push to legislate. You know, the, the Democrats controlled 
Congress and the presidency, there's, you know, seems to be right or wrong, a pretty decent amount of public support for some kind of action on student loan debt. Well, if, if they were going to legislate about this, the way to do it is to loosen the bankruptcy laws. Because right now, your Pell Grants, actually most student loans, are exempt from bankruptcy discharge. Yeah. So, you know, if you file for bankruptcy, for, I'm sorry, file for bankruptcy, which is a last resort for most people, you expect that to forgive your debts, right? You, you get a discharge from your debts, and you, there's a price that you pay for it. You know, you take a huge hit to your credit rating. Yeah. You can only do it once every seven years. It's very difficult to qualify for loans for a little while after that. There's reasons why everybody doesn't just file for bankruptcy as soon as they get any kind of a debt, because there are consequences to filing for bankruptcy. But there's a way of at least getting out of debt yeah. so that you're not forever treading water. Yeah. Student loans are exempted from that process currently. If we really wanted to lighten the burden on folks, wouldn't we just loosen those bankruptcy laws? Yeah, you know, that that seems like one of the obvious ways to do it. And it's it's also worth noting, even if this program had gone through, and even if you agree that, you know, the government should do something about student loan debt, it's not a f- like forward thinking program what was being proposed. It wasn't right. you know, it wasn't doing anything about future students. It was just people who currently have the debt can get some of it forgiven. And well, and it's the folks that have $10,000 or $20,000 in debt are not the ones who are having their lives destroyed by the student loan debt. It's people who took on hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans yeah. that are unable to tread water on this stuff. And forgiving $10,000 of it is a drop in the bucket for yeah. those people. Yeah. So whether you think there needs to be action on this front or not, you know, not everyone does. Although I think most people at least inclined toward thinking that student loan debt is an issue, but this was obviously not going to be a long-term solution regardless. And so maybe this can be impetus to actually think through the issue, hopefully. Well, it's, it's effectively handing a $10,000 check to people who have taken opportunities that result in increased earning capacity in excess of those who did not take those, those opportunities. I think it's directly regressive to forgive student loan like this. Yeah, not a big fan of that. Anyway, that's, that's that subject. Just wanted to make sure that you guys were aware of what was going on on that front. All right, so next up, we have some further developments on the state of gun control law in New York State. You may remember earlier this year, we had an episode on New York Pistol and Rifle Association or something like that. It's a very long it's name. It's a really of long name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah. you know, a New York gun rights organization v. Bruin. I know that name. <laughs> which, the, gun, the gun toters versus the gun grabbers. Yeah, if, if you like. <laughs> um, which resulted in the Supreme Court striking down actually a pretty old gun law in New York that imposed pretty severe restrictions on especially concealed carry. You know, you had to yeah. basically demonstrate that there was a imminent threat to your life in order to qualify to to. Yeah, I think they they said a compelling need, right? You needed to show need. Yeah, and for that. It, it crucially had been ruled that which is which is absurd because under Heller and you know much more so even under the follow up case of McDonald, I'm sorry, City of McDonald v. Chicago, that's that's not okay. Yeah, uh, Second Amendment is a fundamental right. The right to keep and bear arms for self defense is a fundamental right. So when you, you don't have to show need to exercise a fundamental right. Yeah. It was a strange situation to me because, you know, one of the fundamental things you might need a weapon for in in some sense of the word is self-defense. They ruled general self-defense doesn't count as a a particular need. You need, you know, something above and beyond that. And for practical purposes, it seems like it was basically you need a history of someone making threats against you um, to qualify for it. But (laughs) New York, leaping into action after the result of that Supreme Court case, decided basically to try again with... New rounds of gun laws. And these ones proved to be problematic as well. Yes, at least in the opinion of one judge in particular. And of the, of the Constitution, you know. Yeah, that, so. that's going to be our interpretation, <laughs> certainly. So they, you know, they rolled out the Concealed Carry Improvement Act, which, among other things, would require anyone applying for a gun license to, you know, give the official all of their social media accounts and information 
names and they had to prove good moral character yeah right so in order to do that you have to show that you're not putting racist stuff on social media <laughs> you yeah. know that you're not probably that you're not one of those horrible oath keepers but that is an egregious abuse of people's civil liberties and this one i, th I thought even more bizarre to me than that was the names and contact details of everyone you live with has to be submitted yeah, because they want to make sure that you don't live with a hooligan. It's going to take his gun and shoot up a school. I, I guess, but, you know, that's... You know, it's interesting to me, too, because what if I live with someone, I don't know they want to apply for a gun license, and then suddenly I find out that my information has been given over to to someone that I had no intention of talking to in my entire life. Well, that's, that's third-party rule, you know? If yeah. you ever give your private information to a third party, the government has probable cause to search that person, well... You're out of luck. I, I think that's one of the craziest rules in Supreme Court history. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think there's any protection there, at least under current precedent. Yeah. Anyway, all of that, I think they could have expected to, to come under serious challenge. And then the, the other element of this law that it was at least making the headlines, I haven't read through all of the provisions of the, of the act, but it designated, quote unquote, sensitive locations throughout New York, where it would be a felony. Places where it's really bad to be shot. <laughs> yeah, unlike, unlike the places where a bullet wound wouldn't be bad. Um, yeah. But anyway, but the, these places, it would now be a felony to have a weapon of any kind, whether, you know, concealed or open carry. And that included places like Times Square and the subway, or at least some of the subways. And anyway. Uh, Schools, courthouses, polling stations. Yes, and what's houses of worship too? I think yes, have. actually that that was one of the major ones. Yes, was that they specifically outlawed. So, how do those people from Zardoz practice their religion? I'm not sure how many of our listeners will have seen the film Zardoz. But <laughs> I don't recommend it at no, all. It's uh, but, um, I think it gets a slightly bad rap. It is usually held up as one of the worst movies of all time. I it's don't think not it's, one of the worst movies I don't of all think time. It's, it's, it's got a four act structure when it shouldn't, so it goes about a half hour longer than it feels like it ought to. But it's not that horrible. It's just not that good. It is also very bizarre, and it does heavily feature. <laughs> Uh, both guns and sort of the ritual use of guns in a very odd way. I don't yeah. don't really recommend it, but if you're curious, you can look at it. My only point is code. people from that movie can't practice their religion True with enough. this law. So, and under Smith, there's probably a law of general applicability, so that's fine, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but even though it might be okay under the First Amendment, it fails under the Second Amendment. Yeah. There's been a preliminary injunction issued against this law, though. I thought one of the, the interesting things, and we can get into this in a minute, was that the judge sort of selectively struck down the, the or well, stayed rather, the sensitive location part. So he got rid of, basically, it, it seems to me like the logic was any private areas, you know, any anything owned by a private business or private individual, including the houses of worship thing, that can't stand, that's down. But it seems like he left intact things that are, you know, sort of public areas, schools, courthouses, polling centers, et yeah. cetera. Well, and, and I think that, so just to be clear, I think the rationale in creating that, what do they call it, protected space, sensitive locations, mm -hmm. I think the rationale in creating that is because New York recognizes now, okay, Second Amendment's going to be treated as a fundamental right. So presumably scrutiny on this is going to work similarly to the way it does with other fundamental rights. Yeah. It's like freedom of speech. Well, we know that time, place, manner restrictions are okay for freedom of speech. You know, if you want to hold a demonstration in Times Square, you got to get a permit to do it, right? That's something that we accept. Yep. Difference here is, A, they don't give the permit, so it's not time, place, manner. It's all the time in that place, in mm. any manner. <laughs> yep. And secondly, if you fail to get a permit for a demonstration in Times Square, you're not going to get charged with a felony. Yeah. <laughs> you might not be allowed to do it, but you're not going to get charged with a felony. Right. And it's... I, th I thought That's absurd. It, I thought it was, <laughs> it was wild, too, that, you know, because there's some degree of, you know, public acceptance of the idea that having an unlicensed weapon may be felonious under certain circumstances. But in this case, even if you had a gun license and you had the gun in one of these places, suddenly that was going to be a felony. Yeah. Which... That, to me, definitely seems like it substantially burdens a fundamental right. You'd think. <laughs> yeah. So he stays that. 
Let's see, you've got a few more talking points here, David. You have licensing for firearms in general, constitutional or not. Yeah. So this is something we, we've talked about gun cases before. We haven't talked specifically about this issue. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on whether, you know, because you look at the Second Amendment, there's not a whole lot of qualification to it. I know some people... Shall not be infringed. Yeah, we, we've, we've talked about yeah. how some people choose to interpret the militia clause as being a condition on the right to bear arms. We've talked about why and why that's think, very stupid. Yeah, why because, we don't think I mean, it's true. both it's both grammatically incoherent and it's historically incoherent. I mean, right. that's I don't think that argument holds any water at all. So. Right. So anyway, all that to say, doesn't seem like there's a lot of wiggle room to the Second Amendment. Right now, well, I mean, look at First Amendment. You have the freedom of speech. Yeah. It's. I mean, most of our most of our rights, as stated in the Bill of Rights, are stated in fairly unequivocal ways, and. You know, I don't think anybody would say, yeah, if I go out and I say David Trucial, my co-host on this this podcast, is a tax evader and everybody should do him bodily harm. Yeah. That's obviously not protected. No. David can obviously come and sue me. And when I say not protected, what I mean is, yeah, I can say that, but my speech obviously is going to have adverse consequences on David and I should be held accountable. Yeah. for those adverse consequences. So in that sense, no right is absolute, right? Because there's always points in which your rights can come into conflict with other people's rights. And even yeah. if you're allowed to do that thing, the consequences of what you've done still make you accountable to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. I would say same thing applies with Second Amendment. So I don't think that we can refer to generalized licensing for firearms. I, I would treat it, I actually would. I think it's correct to treat it akin to time, place, manner restrictions in the case of First Amendment and say that if what the government is imposing is a licensing requirement, for instance, you have to have a license to carry a firearm onto a military base, mm -hmm. if that's something the government required. I think it would make sense to subject that to a lower standard of scrutiny than can you keep a gun in your house, you know, for, for, for self-defense purposes. Yeah. I think the interest the government would need to demonstrate in order to say that sort of law is permissible would be a lower bar than owning guns, generally speaking. We know the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right, so that would get strict scrutiny. But there are still interests where you may not want guns in particular contexts, certainly like, you know, firing guns in certain contexts is something you can restrict. You, you may want, there are circumstances where you may want people to carry those guns openly. Uh, I would say it needs to be contextual, it needs to be based on the circumstances, it needs to be tailored to whatever interest is being advanced. Yeah, I, th I think that makes a certain amount of sense, you know. We don't want kids bringing guns to schools, right? That's right. That, Even though that's a government facility, so presumably something that's open to the full protection of Second Amendment. You know, there's no, I'm not letting people with guns on my property argument there. It's just the government and it's students who are compelled to go there. But we don't want kids bringing guns to schools. That's something that I think makes sense for states to restrict. I would obviously vehemently oppose the federal government restricting that. It's none of their business. But states, it makes sense for them to want to not allow kids to bring guns to schools. I would say, you know, that that's a sort of time, place, manner restriction. The interest in having safe schools, having kids not showing off guns to each other and being like, look, my 45 is better than your nine millimeter, uh, like which kids would do if they all brought <laughs> guns to schools. <laughs> I mean, they just would. Yeah. There's an interest in restricting that, right? I think that it makes sense. I think that would meet probably the intermediate scrutiny standard that'd be appropriate in that circumstance. And, you know, we, we've talked about scrutiny standards before, and I think there's also a, a specific video in the Ask an Attorney series about that. There is. It's called so, What is a Balancing Test? There you go. So uh, if you want to hear more about that, please go check out that video on our YouTube channel. All right. So that, that's, that concludes that one. Yeah. All right. So next up on the agenda. We've got a pair of cases. They're very closely related, but they are separate Supreme Court cases. An organization called Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. And they are bringing cases against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. And you've probably, you know, very likely you've seen headlines about this. You've probably seen this in the news. Yeah. This one's been, this one's reached the popular mindset yeah. at this point. So. <laughs> but, well, it's, you know, everybody with kids going to colleges, it's, it's kind of a it's become almost a ridiculous game how you get admitted to colleges nowadays. Yeah. And it's, I think it's probably on a lot of people's minds. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a very different world. One of my, uh, well, actually two, two things I want to bring up on this point, because 
it was actually shocking. Although who'd want to go to Harvard, you know? Well, that leads me into this point. So someone someone posted this somewhere online. I can't remember where now, but uh, a joke that was something to the effect of, you used to get into Harvard by sending a, a letter to Boston that says, I've got some notions, and they would just mail you back a train ticket. Um, I'm not sure that was ever true. But, but. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, as it turns out, under certain circumstances, like, for instance, if you are a Kennedy, as in John F. Kennedy. <laughs> That's, you don't even have to do that. They'll probably send you an acceptance well, letter before you apply. I, someone, <laughs> someone found and posted his actual admissions essay to Harvard, John F. Kennedy. Oh, this is going to be a treat. And it said, it was like four or five sentences long. It said, basically, my dad went to Harvard. I've always thought it would be very fun to go to Harvard. I think there's something special about being a Harvard man. And did I mention my dad went to Harvard? <laughs> That's wow. basically what it was. Um, I'll see wow. if I can actually find right. the photo and we, we will post it with this episode, maybe. But anyway, uh, so for certain people and under certain circumstances, yeah, getting into school was uh, was quite easy. For the most part uh-huh. these days, not so much, at least not at competitive schools. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I guess all that was preamble because we didn't actually say specifically what this is about. It's a challenge to the use of affirmative action admission standards. Race conscious yeah. admission standards yeah. is the way that it's phrased. So if race is a criterion in determining whether or not someone can go to that school. And it's it's crazy because you listen to the oral argument on both of these cases, it sounds like there's a lot of disputed facts here because petitioners say that race can serve as both a plus and minus factor to different applicants, whether you know some races are, are a plus factor, some races are a minus factor. Yeah. But the schools were just outright denying that. They were saying they don't do it that way. But they were very, very unclear about how they actually do do it. Yeah, you know, the... So at that point, the question then becomes, well, if it's neither a positive factor nor a negative factor, why are you collecting the information to begin with? And, you know, how, why is that, you know, even relevant to the application in that case? So, well, but it, it, it I mean, clearly it's a plus factor. I mean, and they, they equivocated on that. We could play the yeah. clip where they equivocate on that. I don't know if we have it lined up, but clearly they are treating it as, as both a plus and minus factor based on the circumstances. Right. Yeah, which they're not supposed to do. So existing precedent on this, this is the one they're kind of all dealing with. Both cases are asking for this precedent to be overturned. Uh, and that precedent is Grutter v. Bollinger. It's a 2003 case. And what that one said is that unrepresented minority groups can be favored in the application process, as long as that process also takes into account other factors and evaluate people on an individual basis, as opposed to, you know, oh, we're just giving you points based on what race you're a member of. Now, that has always seemed like an incoherent standard to me. Yeah, you know. I don't know, I don't know how you can take into account somebody's race and also assess them on an individualized basis. Yeah, you know, and it, it seems seems like there was a similar, you know, degree of confusion in some of what I read coming from the the schools in this case where they said, oh, you, you know, we, we need that information. We want that information to make a holistic analysis, but we're not actually, you know, relying on that piece of information in and of itself for anything. That, that argument, see, I could buy that argument if they didn't have a limited number of seats at these schools, if it weren't a competitive application process. Yeah. Because if it's a competitive application process, the fact that you're taking that into account at all means that you're not assessing individuals on an individualized basis. Because what one student, you know, all things being equal, you look at two students who have exactly the same qualifications, but one is a member of a minority group and one isn't, you're gonna you're gonna take the minority student and you're not gonna take the other one. Yeah. Presumably the idea here is that you want you know you want some kind of ratio of students of different backgrounds that's sort of the well that's they can't say that so they've all had to consciously (laughs) avoid that that's race quotas have been illegal for a long long time i think since you know the 80s i forget which case that was but you can't have a quota right right but that's kind of the implicit ground of all this because and this is yeah well and that's what that's what bollinger did in my opinion It, it created a weird middle ground yeah where race can be a plus factor so, like, you know, you can try to make sure that you get enough of whatever group this is. You just can't call it a quota. Right. And you'd better argue pretty hard that it isn't one. Right. And, you know, it's 
And that, that that's where it gets complicated too, because one of the you know underlying issues in the the current status is that it's not even really about minorities broadly speaking. It's about certain minorities because by and large Asian Americans are overrepresented in certainly elite schools, and right. it's you know being Asian is, is suddenly potentially a detriment. But you you can see why Asian students would take issue with this. I mean, take an old guard school like Harvard. You know they want to get in all these legacy students, students who have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who have gone here. Right. You also know that Asian students tend to have much higher test scores, much higher objective scores on all the criteria that schools are supposed to consider. Yeah. But, well, Harvard thinks they've already got too many of them. So to make sure all those legacy students get in, we're only going to accept a certain number of Asian applicants. You can see where that's, you know... Yeah. That's pretty offensive, and right? The, you're right though, in that the one of the problems here is that no one is actually openly stating this, but it's pretty much a known quantity. Yeah. <laughs> like because yeah. if you were to openly state it, it would be unambiguously illegal. Well, and if you did if you did purely objective criteria yeah. for who gets into school, you know, test scores, which I think are kind of the, the quintessential objective criterion. Yeah. You'd have nothing but Asian students at Harvard. I mean, you might have a few others, but it's China has protected access to its bureaucratic elite, so moving up in social society, since 400 AD by using test scores. You know, everywhere else, you were able to move up in the echelons of society by uh, either marrying into the right family or in some cases by, you know, competitively you could do it. In China, they had a test that you took. Yeah. You had to pass this test if you wanted to become a bureaucrat. That is inculcated. It's ingrained in the culture. It's been there for over a thousand years. And literally, I mean, you can look at where they took this test. They go to cubicles. They sit down. They take a written test. Yeah. So very, very used to doing well on those kinds of objective measures. You know, the West, very famously, stereotypically, is idiosyncratic. You know, we like doing a variety of things. If somebody else is really good at something, we'll pick something else to be good at so that we, we can be good in our domain instead of you know, having to all fight the same rat race. That's not really the way that it works in Asian culture. So if you measure purely on those objective criteria, the Asian students beat out the others every time. Well, folks at Harvard, folks at other schools, they don't like that. So we got to look at a more nuanced approach. We got to look at more different kinds of criteria, and that's what they end up doing. The argument in these both of these cases is that doing that, at least the manner in which they've been doing that, is patently racist and discriminatory against Asian students. Yeah. What do you think, David? You know, it's, it's. I I, I think it's an. Uh, it speaks to a, a general issue, in. American culture, where we have these conflicting principles at work, one of which is sort of you know the classic colorblind principle, right? That's sort of the right, which is what's that's what's compelled by the Fourteenth Amendment, yeah. You know, in, in the in the viewpoint of most sane people, that <laughs> yeah, know well, how to read. Well, yeah, and we can we can get into alternative <laughs> interpretations of the Fourteenth Amendment in a minute, but yeah, alternative facts. Yeah, you know the which there there are some including some among the judiciary but <laughs> you know and in in many ways that's sort of the official orthodoxy right like that, that's sort of understood to be what is supposed to be the case that the law is not supposed yeah. to take notice of people's backgrounds government has to be colorblind right which by the way so harvard's a private school uh the other school what was the other school University, unc yeah right? north carolina so that's a state school yeah the, so that's a state school harvard's a private school reason that this applies to harvard in addition to unc is because they accept state money right yeah yeah so that was actually which by the way they have no reason to do they got a 50 billion dollar <laughs> endowment they don't... yeah harvard is is richer <laughs> than most countries but uh you know the petition did note that actually even they, they said you know look harvard if you're that concerned about this stop accepting government money and it's not a problem right it remains to be seen whether they will actually i honestly i think they probably will the kind of the whole point of Harvard is being a good old boy system, right? I mean, you don't go there for an education. You go there to meet all the other important people so that you can make all the contacts. You can, you know, get into government, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, it's unfortunately that that's true. Certainly that should be. <laughs> but uh, I, I thought it was it's almost openly true about yeah, Harvard. You know, it's, it's you, you go there for the networking. It, and it's one of the great tragedies, too, in that, you know, a lot of American elite institutions if you wanted, if you were really self-motivated, 
they have unparalleled resources. You could oh, get yeah. an education that would be you know second to none, but you can also go there and skate by and rub elbows with people who are going to be important, and then you get the degree at the end of it. Yeah, I th- MIT is different, but certainly the legacy institutions are like that. Yeah, and you know the the ones that have sort of the big big names. That's tragically much truer than it has any right to be. <laughs> And the, oh, this was an interesting thing, too. Look, if someone's family's been here since 1620, they're probably fairly influential by this point. Yeah. And if they've been here since 1620 and they went to college, they went to Harvard because it was the only one here in 1620. Yeah. And then Yale in about 1700 and uh, I think <laughs> right. 1740 or so. That's Princeton. Um, but this is actually interesting. I, I almost thought about using this for the Captain Kangaroo segment today, but... Harvard apparently forgot to inform their insurance policyholder within the um, required time limit that they were being sued. And <laughs> so they have to bear all the expenses for this lawsuit. On oh, good. Own. I'm really <laughs> glad to hear that. Actually, one of our cases right now, I won't say the name because we're going into mediation fairly soon. And I don't want to hurt our chances in that. Uh, but they got their claim denied by their insurer. And I'm you know, gleeful about that because even though it means we'll probably get a lower settlement in the case, means the school is actually the one paying it. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the, the, and that's, you know, again, it'll be a drop in the bucket to Harvard because they're richer than, like God. I said, like most of the world. <laughs> but at, King Midas, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, I guess, uh, yeah, richer than Croesus would be the, the proverbial form. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a drop in the bucket to them, but at least it actually will be a drop of theirs. Well, and it'll tell them if, and they probably will. So we're addressing this in a totally scattershot way but they probably will lose that that's sort of accepted generally in sort of the constitutional world right now yeah Um, it's 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 very likely how badly they lose is is up for grabs yeah whether or not bollinger gets overturned is really the uh, the important issue here we don't know that's going to happen but i i think it's fairly clear that harvard doesn't even doesn't even meet the standards of bollinger yeah and, and UNC is, I'm focusing on the Harvard case. The UNC facts are fairly similar. I found the Harvard ones a little bit more egregious because they were a little bit more willing to admit that they made race a plus or a minus factor uh, in admission, which right. is really what was relevant to this case. Uh, we've known for years that colleges treat it as a plus factor, but when it comes to Asian students, they've been treating it as a minus factor. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, you're right that this is very likely to go against these schools. It's also worth noting that uh, the newest Supreme Court justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson was recused from the Harvard case because she's recused herself. Yeah, you know she's she chose to do that. Yeah, because she's actually a trustee of Harvard, I believe, if I remember correctly. Yes, that's correct. But anyway, before we get further off the rails here, we do have some clips from the oral argument. So why don't we go ahead and take a listen to those? Justice Alito, you make some very good points in your brief, but reading it, I was struck by the fact that. The word Asian does not appear one time in your brief. Yet Asian Americans said... Who's he talking to here? Yeah, so he's talking to the attorney for UNC here. Okay, so the school. Yeah. Been subjected to de jure segregation. Uh, They have been subjected to many forms of mistreatment and discrimination. We talked about that, the Japanese internment. So do you have anything to say this morning about the interests of students of Asian background and how your arguments impact them? Yes, Your Honor, so two points. One is that discrimination against Asian Americans is wrong. It's bad, we do not condone it at all. But two, our brief actually reflects. Why does he have to say that? Because he's about to basically say they should be allowed that to do it Even though anyway. we don't condone it, we do it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not a racist, but... I'm going to do something that seems like it's acting Isn't on... that like a meme at this point? That I'm not a... Now, I'm no racist, but yeah. then you say something racist? Yeah, uh, but in this case, it's, you know, now I'm no racist, but I'm part of an organization that is going to systematically discriminate against people of a certain racial background. Um, <laughs> Because of their racial background. Right. Like, you know, it's not just incidental. We're going to discriminate against them because they're of that race. Right. It's <laughs> the record in this case. There were no claims developed by petitioner involving the mistreatment or maltreatment of Asian American students. And other than not getting accepted. Problems that yeah. happened with the first brief uh, is that the, they conflated their arguments 
against Harvard, which Mr. Waxman will you know, adequately defend shortly, but those arguments um, conflated the issues. There's no racial balancing claim against UNC. There's no allegation of quota. There's been a lot of talk about quota in this case. There's no claim about that. There's no claim against UNC involving the intentional discrimination against Asian American students vis-a-vis -vis white students or other students. So that record actually doesn't so exist. So what there. is your response to the simple argument that college admissions are a zero-sum game? And if you give a yeah. plus to a person who is an under, falls within the category of underrepresented uh, minority, but not to somebody else, you are disadvantaging the latter student. And, and Your Honor, the, you know, that's an that's a excellent point, but the record actually bears out about how, in this case, how the holistic admissions plan does end up operating. And it is where an individualized consideration is being made on a student's own talents, on a student's own achievements. So you're, you're, saying, you're saying that, the, that race in and of itself has no effect in, on, at the University of North Carolina? Absolutely not, Your Honor. Okay, I'm, then I'm you would have no objection to an opinion from this court saying you may not consider race. You may consider other things, but you may not consider the mere fact of race, period. You would have no objection to that. Your Honor, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question with a negative and a double negative here. <laughs> But I do want to make clear that we fully support the limited consideration of race as it has been authorized. Oh, come on. Yeah. Oh, come on. You just said that you don't do that. And then you say that you want to keep doing that. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think that's. You've got to be kidding me. That is, it's got to be so frustrating. I listened to a lot of the oral argument in this case. The whole, all of it's like this. You know, the, yeah. the judges will say, okay, so are you accepting or rejecting people on account of their race. They say, no. Okay, so you don't have any problem with us saying you can't consider race then? Oh, no, we want to consider it. In a, in a limited Essentially, the argument seems to be the fact that we consider other stuff in addition to race yeah. makes it not matter that we consider race? Yeah. That was never the issue, though. Right, and that's, you know, you, you talked about the, the precedent sort of forcing people into this bind, and I yeah. think this is where we see it. Like, you know, it's... They are desperately trying to avoid... What are you supposed to argue? Yeah. That's, it, yeah. It's just a desperate bid to avoid being pinned down too closely on the issue. Because, yeah, if, you, if you're allowed to treat it... And again, you know, as Justice Alito brought up there, as you mentioned earlier, if something is a positive and there's a limited number of seats, means not having that same quality is implicitly a negative. Right? Right. And so given that... They're not just going to accept every applicant. And it's there are not unraced people. Right. There aren't yeah. raceless people. Exactly. Like if there were raceless people, then maybe race wouldn't be a negative. Yeah. Based purely on the, the you know the limited number of seats. But what it comes down to, in point of fact, is they're of a different race. Right. And that makes them have a, a lower you know lower priority than somebody that's of the race that is unrepresented. Yeah. You know it's yeah you can't treat your background as like, do you play a musical instrument? It would be a plus if you do. <laughs> like, it's not, right. it's not the same right. kind of thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. but if you say, you know, we really need clarinetists, right. and the other student plays trombone, well, that's a minus factor to trombone. Yeah. If you only <laughs> give the plus factor to clarinet, right? Yeah, so... I mean, that's... Anyway, but, you, yeah. you know, I, I think, it, hopefully it's obvious, you know, to, to the people who heard that argument, how... You know, I can picture that attorney sweating, basically. Because, I know, you know right? he's, he's put. What am I supposed to do? Everyone's going to think I'm a racist now. He's, he's put in such an awkward <laughs> position because he has to. Yeah, you know, he has to say, "Oh no, we don't, we don't consider it. It's not a, you know, it's the holistic analysis." Okay, so then you, you know, and I, I applaud Alito there for for getting right to the point by saying, "Okay, so if we say you can't consider race, do you have a problem with that?" Yes. <laughs> well, and it's funny because you know. Obviously, this guy doesn't want to get painted as a racist, right? And this, I'll tell you, when attorneys, particularly public interest or constitutional attorneys, take cases, association with your clients is a real issue. You know, we talked before about how a lot of times we defend liberties by defending scoundrels, but you have to really decide, am I going to defend this person that said these horribly offensive racist things yeah. and make everybody think that I'm a horrible racist? Right. <laughs> it, right now, we just took on a case defending a candidate for office. Actually, he was elected to office up in 
up in Alaska who's accused of being a neo-Nazi. Totally bogus claims, which is why we were willing to take the case. But if the guy had actually been a neo-Nazi, we might not have taken it because we don't really want to be associated with those folks. But the fact that these lawyers are having to voice these, what I think are fundamentally racist arguments. Yeah. Yeah, you can see him sweat. Yeah. <laughs> By this court. Again, well, then I, it is I just only on an individual. I don't understand your answer. Either uh, if it's irrelevant, then you shouldn't care whether it's it's ruled out. Right. And we're yeah. not art- if I'm articulating that, Your Honor, I'm not meaning to. We I didn't mean to say it was irrelevant. Within the context <laughs> of an applicant may be considered as a plus factor. That's Race not only in Race in itself may be considered a plus Yeah. I don't think anybody thinks that any school in the country is exclusively looking at the races of their applicants. Right. <laughs> Obviously, it's considered within a broader context. Yeah. Yeah. This factor. Yes, Your Honor. And therefore, those who don't get the plus factor have what is essentially a negative factor. No, not Your this, Honor. It's not the same thing? No, Your Honor, it's not, because it's looking at the whole applicant uh, <laughs> as they apply within their whole application and their resume, et cetera. Uh-huh. The, ho- the whole applicant. Two people are in a race, and uh, you give a plus factor to one of the runners. So that runner gets to start. Uh, well, if it's a 100-yard dash, let's say it gets to start five yards closer to the finish line. He's really having to spell uh, this out. He yeah. doesn't get that plus factor is disadvantaged, right? That would be in that case, but that case is not here. There are no bonus points that are provided to any applicant at the University of North Carolina. That is okay, but there fully are pluses. prohibited by right. this court's it's decision. Just not, you don't call them points. Yeah. And we're not <laughs> suggesting that it should be reinstituted. All right. Okay. Uh, that was really bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, no, th- I don't really envy them having to defend oh this my case, gosh. to be frank. That, it's not really a good way guy, to do it. <laughs> you know, being in a position where you have to say, no, it's a plus. It's not a bonus point, but it is a plus. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Please accept the difference. We should win here. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, and, and the part that this being left out to, that, that's actually, you know, the perniciously racist part, is that a lot of these schools think that a lot of these Asian students are very similar to one another. So when you talk about the holistic process, you're actually not making it any less biased against these Asian students. You're making it a bit more because they're looking for things that actually favor, I think, Western applicants over Eastern ones when they're saying, well, we want you to have lots of interests. We want you to have variety of things that you care about. You know, we want you to be good at tobogganing, like <laughs> so, something weird that other people aren't doing. Where, where in, in Asian cultures, like I mentioned, particularly in China for the past 1,500 years, literally since before the Norman conquest of England, They've well, taken a test to advance in society. Since before the fall of the Roman Empire, let alone. <laughs> yeah, since before yeah. the fall of the Roman Empire, they've done this. That's <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the standard that's been laid out, and that's the standard they're meeting. It's it's not that they're more similar people to one another. It's that there's a bias of school, what do you call them? People that, that look at applications, school admissions. Admissions officers, officers yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, you know... It, there's only so many things you can realistically sort of categorize on an application. You know, you've got academics, obviously, you've got test scores, obviously. And then, Essay. you know, and then, yeah, and then you, you fill that out with... Well, and, and so, okay, so let's look at those individually. Academics, they can't weight that strongly because different schools are different, right. have different standards. So we've got test scores. Yeah. So, yeah, as far as the academic side goes, it's realistically, you know, they, they want to see that you didn't fail everything they want to see you didn't right. scrape by with d's but so they got a bare minimum gpa yeah but beyond that they don't really consider GPA. yeah so you're, you're basically left with your standardized tests are standardized tests a great way to gauge how good a student someone is not necessarily but there's not many better options if any right so that's pretty much what you're left with and then you've got you know extracurriculars whether that's sports or clubs or you know model un or whatever and playing the glass harmonica. Yeah, and then you you may have like a, a special skills section, right? Now, if you're from a background and you know, historically there's been lots of cultures that this has been true of. I think it's it's particularly visible in the US now with East Asian cultures, but historically, you know, you could say similar things about Jews in America, you know, different groups as well. If you emphasize study, that's going to look 
one way. You're probably going to have good test yeah. scores. You're probably going to have certain You're going to have less time for extracurriculars. Yeah, it, and the extracurriculars you do have are likely to be sort of serious-minded ones. Model UN, debate yeah. club, whatever. You know, those are the, the things that are probably going to show up if you come from a culture that emphasizes high achievement. Right. Yeah, there is going to be cultural bias there that someone's going to stand out more if it's like, oh, I didn't, you know, I wasn't that into debate or whatever, but I, you know, collect... Started a business, and that business made a million dollars in its first year. Sure. You're going to get into Harvard if you do that. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> even having like a quirky interest may actually be more of a benefit to you in those sort of circumstances. Yeah, I do puppetry. Yeah, you, you know, know? <laughs> I, yeah, I collect antique bookmarks. That's going to like, you know, if, you, if you're an admissions officer reading through dozens, hundreds of applications, you're going to get bored and your eyes are going to glaze over. But if you see something yeah. unusual, maybe you notice. But that benefits and just to be, certain groups over. And just to be clear. This is going to happen whether or not race is a plus or a minus factor, which is yeah. why it's so egregious and offensive to make race right. a minus factor, especially for Asian students, because school applications officers are going to do that anyway. Yeah. And, and that's actually, you know, at one point in the oral argument, that question was asked, you know, what if somebody, you know, race is not a factor at all, but somebody in their application essay talks about how they uh, had to overcome all kinds of discrimination as a kid growing up. Yep. That's something schools could still consider. That's not considering race a factor as such. That's wanting a diverse student body because you're wanting a, a student body who's had a variety of backgrounds. But when you assume they have a certain background just because they're a member of a certain race, that's per se discriminatory. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the matter of diversity, let's listen to another clip. Yep. <laughs> Questions? Uh, Mr. Park, um I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. <laughs> uh, it seems to mean everything for everyone. Uh, the, and I'd like you first, you did uh, give some examples That's in Clarence your opening Thomas, remarks. Yep. But I'd like you to give us a specific definition of diversity in the context of the University of North Carolina. And I'd also like you to give us a, uh, a clear idea of exactly uh, what the educational benefits of diversity at the University of North Carolina uh, would be. Yes, Your Honor. So first, we define diversity the way this court has in its court's precedence, which means a broadly diverse set of <laughs> criteria that extends to all different backgrounds and perspectives and not solely limited to race. And okay, you just lost the case. Yeah. <laughs> he asked you to define diversity, and you used the word diverse yeah. in your definition. Yeah, you know, you probably isn't literally going to decide the case, but that's certainly not a good sign. And if you were, no. if you, if you were writing that as an essay... You'd lose serious points for doing that. Yeah, um, you'd get a lot of minus points for that. Yeah. Take that, UNC yeah. lawyer. Anyway, that's what do you probably mean, all we yeah. should say. What, what do you mean by diversity? <laughs> oh, being very diverse is what I mean by <laughs> diverse in a variety of areas. Not just race. It's not that's we take diversity to mean all kinds of things. Uh, that's a good point, though, too. <laughs> that yeah, you use diverse in the definition of diversity, and then you immediately use another synonym, basically, for diverse. Uh -huh. <laughs> Okay, anyway, that that's a do you want to talk about the Justice Jackson thing or Oh, about the 14th Amendment? Yeah, so we we are starting to push the time a little bit here, so we should keep this section punchy, but we talked before about how seems like the 14th Amendment it's pretty obvious that the law needs to be, you know, neutral with respect to race or, you know, as the common phrase is colorblind, yeah. right? I said a funny story about that. When I was in high school, I took a, an AP US government class. And there was a girl in that class who was famous for saying the dumbest things in all of the classes that she was in. <laughs> and the teacher in that class explained constitution means the government's supposed to be colorblind with respect to race. And she raises her hand and says, Mr. Rhodes, I just don't understand any of this government stuff. What do you mean, Natalie? What do you not understand? Well, the constitution's not in color. <laughs> I, had, uh, I had a history teacher in high school who was in fact colorblind. And one of the students in my class who was similarly notorious for saying some very strange things in class, raised his hand and says, so what colors are you allergic to? 
All right. Yep. <laughs> anyway, so it's supposed to the Fourteenth Amendment is supposed to make uh, the government colorblind with respect to race. Justice Jackson doesn't agree with that. She says that the Fourteenth Amendment allows for race conscious legislation. Yeah. So you know, her argument was that if, and we, we've talked very recently, in fact, about how you use the intent of Congress when you when you're interpreting the law. But she argued that, oh, if we look back at the, you know, the records and the debates and the context, clearly Congress intended to use the 14th Amendment to benefit people who had been slaves. And so therefore, it's fine to use the 14th you know, Amendment in a way that favors certain groups if you need to correct a historic inequality. Now, what the 14th Amendment says is that no state shall make or enforce any law to deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Yeah. So th- that's equal protection here and now. That's not making amends for past discrimination. Right. And <laughs> she used the word explicit at one point. And I want to point out that um, no, uh, what she was talking about actually would have been implicit. <laughs> so yes. there's, that, there's that. For another thing, she kept talking about the status. These people should be coming over for that, not for not. I mean, not knowing the definition of the word woman, I mean, that could be that could be different in different legal contexts. Implicit always means the opposite of explicit. Right. <laughs> That's a much more egregious error. There's something else I want to point out, though, too, that I think hasn't really been remarked upon. She talked specifically about, you know, the Freedmen's Bureau and, you know, things Congress did to benefit former slaves after Reconstruction. That was That applied to all freed slaves, not just... African slaves. Right, and it also critically would not have applied to people who weren't freedmen who were black. So it's actually, right. it, it, it doesn't... It's again, not race conscious at it all. It doesn't have to do with race. I mean, it's... Except, no, except nothing. insofar as the majority by far of American slaves were black, but... I think I think all of them were. I think there are a very small number of exceptions to that, but... Okay. It, well, essentially, re- Regardless, yes. I mean, yeah. that's... The fact that everybody that that... that that administration applied to was of a particular race does not make it race conscious legislation. Exactly. So like, in fact, what those things addressed were the legal status of slavery, not right. race. And I think that for whatever reason that hasn't really been commented on. And I, th- I think that was I don't understand why, like that seems very obvious. I, I think there's just such an association. There's nothing, there's nothing inherent in being black that relates to slavery. Right. Nor is there anything inherent in slavery that relates to being black. And that seems to have been missed from All a lot of people's commentary yeah. on and, this stuff. You know, I, I think it's another one of those things where if you actually ask someone directly, I think most people know that, you know, if you said, oh, we're before the end of the Civil War, were all black people in the South slaves? I think people would probably say, well, no, I, you know, I, I guess not. But I think unconsciously a lot of people assume they were. And that there was like a one-to-one correlation. Similar, even if there had been a one-to-one correlation, there is no necessary right. connection. But it's it's another one of those things we've talked about. Actually, have we talked about the three-fifths compromise on the podcast? I don't remember. I think I so. I think we have. Yeah. But it's another one of those things where I think the unconscious sort of perception of what it is, the sort of cultural perception of what it is, is so off base that people have completely wrong-headed ideas about it. And I think similar. Yeah, spoiler alert: the slaveholding states are the ones that wanted slaves counted as a full person, right? Because they wanted more representation for themselves, despite having an entire class of people whom, for whom they deprived basic and essential rights. Yeah. So you know, to be on the abolitionist side, or at least you know, on the anti-slavery side, it should have been zero. You wanted one. zero representation yeah, exactly. for for black slaves because the black slaves were not political actors. I right. mean, they were deprived of right to vote. They were deprived of right to act in their own capacity. I mean, that's... Yeah. So yeah. A- anyway, similarly, I think here it's just there's this weird sliding between the categories that doesn't actually note the very relevant for the interpretation of law fact that slavery was never just equated to a certain race. Right. So... Yeah, now you did get late in the... Um, the antebellum era from guys like John C. Calhoun and others, uh, you do get arguments that start to advance sort of a race essentialist idea of why we ought to keep um, African people slaves. That's very post hoc. You know, that was never part of the argument initially. That was just made to justify something that really can't be justified. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, all that to say, 
the 14th Amendment seems pretty clear on this issue. <laughs> and I, th yeah. I think we can expect that the court will, will rule in, in line with that interpretation. Let's hope so. But for now, introducing the most exciting and interesting fun part of this podcast, where we can learn a little bit about the eccentricities of law throughout the world and throughout the ages, we bring you... Captain Kangaroo Court, once again, so um, we don't have much time. In fact, we have, I think, negative time at this point, but we, we may go a little bit over. Yeah. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll get creative. David, what do we have this week? Creative on the editing block. In the interest of keeping it quick, I'll use two that share a very similar theme, which is disbarment. Mm. So, first one up. Lawyer is disbarred and suspended after he's accused of billing over 24 hours per day. Now, um, wow. on average, uh, in a certain circumstance, anyway, and what what gets egregious here is that he was billing this to a public defender corporation <laughs> that he was working for. <laughs> wow. So, That's um, now there, there are circumstances where you can double bill time, you know, say that you're riding the train to go argue a case for one client. And while you're on that train, you're doing research for another client. Yeah. You can double bill that. Sure. Uh, but. More than 24 hours a day is a little bit suspect. Yeah, it, you know, we've alluded to this before, but in most cases, certainly most of the cases I've experienced being in and around law firms, way more work is actually done than is billed to clients. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's very hard to track all your time. Yeah, and, you know, you, could, you can expect a fraction of the hours you in fact work probably to end up being billed. Yeah. If I, if I work, so if, if I have an eight hour day, generally my days are a little bit longer than eight hours, but if I work an eight hour day, I'm, I'm, it's a good day if I bill six. Yeah. Yeah. Very often, you know, especially if you're, we talked about this, I think last week, but especially if you're a young attorney, your time might not be billed at all. You yeah. know, you might be treated yep. as just sort of a, an observer, practically speaking. But in this case, I, I believe it said that it, this was all from one single day, or, or rather, okay, four different days where on the date he was billing more than 24 hours, which wow. that's just an absurd ratio. That's <laughs> There's very little chance that was legit. Um, uh -huh. Certainly the bar seemed not to think so. <laughs> and... Yeah, so there's disbarment. We build 15 hours or more each for each day for an additional 25 days. Wow, wow. yeah. Uh, so anyway, all that to say, I don't think that guy was um, was following sort of professional standards for his billing. No, no, I would say not. <laughs> all right, and our second disbarment. Lawyer is disbarred for mishandling client check, which that's, you know, that's... A more normal sort of thing that, that can happen and you shouldn't do it you should be very careful with your client's money but uh-huh that that's that's actually that's probably the most common thing to get disbarred for yeah. uh, most lawyers aren't really good numbers people and you have to maintain all the client trust accounts it's a lot of work to do that yeah um, but and it's it can easily go wrong but <laughs> that's not the only thing that was relevant to his disbarment he was also quote recording trial with concealed camera eyeglasses <laughs> <laughs> he had like apparently like those things like those spy glasses they sell kids exactly like the things that like in a if, you know I guess in the 50s because I've only ever seen this referenced in movies that are about the 50s yeah but you, you know the back of the comic book having all the weird ads for like funky gadgets and stuff that you send away with uh -huh. a quarter and they send you back some plastic piece of crap that doesn't really work <laughs> that's apparently why did he do that what is that is there any more detail here that's really what this guy was doing it doesn't really go into much detail. It just, you know. Uh, the client gave Castro a check for 3500 bucks that was expressly earmarked for trial transcripts needed for an appeal. Castro deposited the check into his... Oh, that, that's that's the first yeah, yeah. issue. And then, but bullet yeah. point number two... He never paid for the transcripts. Okay. Yeah, bullet point number two, though. Yeah, he, he put it in the wrong account. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the common way to do it. So they, they list three things in bullet point form for why he was disbarred. That was number one. Number three is apparently he borrowed 100 grand from a client in order oh to, to start his law practice, drafted the loan agreement himself, um, and the client says he only ever paid back a quarter of it. So that's, you know, that's pretty sketchy on its own. But yeah, that's that's called self-dealing. Yeah. Uh, you're not supposed to make deals with clients that benefit yourself because they create a conflict of interest. Yeah. Uh, so if you want, if you're going to have somebody capitalize your business, it shouldn't be your client. Yeah. So bullet points one and three, both financial, both with a decent amount of detail. 
But bullet point number two just says he wore eyeglasses with a concealed camera to make an unauthorized unauthorized recording of a matrimonial trial. Why is that the one they skimp on the details? I don't know. That's the one I, I care don't know. about. That's the one that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so we we may never know why this guy chose to do this, but he chose to James Bond record for some reason. All right. Well, I wonder how that turned out for him. Well, not, not uh, very I wonder well, if he was actually able to watch. Well, I mean, with the footage, I wonder if he was actually able to watch any of it. I don't know. What state is this? Oh, shoot. I just closed the window. Let me see if uh, New York. This is New York. Okay. That fits. <laughs> that makes sense. That's all for today, folks. Hopefully, you enjoyed yet another incursion into the wonderful, weird, wacky world of Captain Kangaroo Court. We'll see you again next week for another segment of that. Laudable show. Yeah. And that'll do it for this episode of the podcast, but stick around for our disclaimers. Yeah, that's we, we promised them at the beginning. Here they are. Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L E X R E X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.